Morning, everyone. I had a moment of panic here. I've got old technology that looked like it was about to crash on me, but thankfully, my notes are back and restored. So um, I'm launching a new series this morning. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be exploring ethics and discernment, which is a pretty big topic. So when you're starting something, it's easy to, um, well, on one hand, it's nice because nothing else has been taken. But on the other hand, it's like trying to preach on the ocean. Where do you even begin? So um, I'm not going to cover it all, but I'm going to make a dent. So let's see where we go this morning. I think it's safe to say that we're living in a world that um, is actually driven to a large part by our own personal or worldly sense of right and wrong. And truth has become in many ways watered down um, or it's considered offensive or else we're actually just a little bit ignorant. And tolerance or affirmation of, a, of someone's personal truth or their, a construct of their truth is seemingly more important than the truth. And we've created a societal judgment system based on either groupthink morality or trial by social media. And we're quick to judge people when they make a mistake. I've heard stories of groups of people that have burned the books of writers who have a conviction that is different to theirs. We label people, we write them off as irredeemable. And it's really challenging for Christians to know how to live an ethical life, as well as how to deal with a world that looks so di very different from how we are called to live. So it's easy to become confused about Christ-centered ethics within our modern morality. So Christian ethics asks, what does the whole Bible teach about which acts and attitudes and personal character traits and behavior that receive God's approval and those that do not. So I wanna try and lay out three thoughts this morning regarding the challenge of living an ethical life. First one is what does a Christ-centered ethical life look like? Two, what do we need to do to realign if we found or discover that we're, we're living outside of that? And thirdly, how does the church respond to those who are not living according to Christ's standards. So let's begin with the first point. What does a Christ-centered ethical life look like? Christian ethics are the principles that guide our actions and our attitudes, and these are beautifully summarized in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 6. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So ethics encompasses our heart attitudes, our thinking, 
which then impacts our behavior and, our, and shapes our convictions, as well as our decision-making. So as Christians today, we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to the ethics of the kingdom of God and the standards that God lays out for us. And we need to recognize this and actually guard our hearts against the way that they are subtly influencing how we live our own lives through our own heart attitudes and behaviors. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes about his concern that many in the church are living by the standards of the world. So what would these standards be? I'm going to hit you with some beautiful alliteration now. So some of these standards are things like power, possessions, prestige, privilege, performing, and pleasing, to name a few. And thinking on this list, it made me think of the plot of just about every Hallmark movie that has ever been done. You know those cheesy ones they put out at Christmas time? But, you know, they're pretty innocent, but there's always the story about this powerful corporate who's pushing for position, who's hoping for the big raise, who is trying to retain the attention and affection of this um, powerful partner who is more interested in image. And something happens and they end up getting sent to a small town where they meet a local. And these small town people, they live a completely different kind of world, I have a different attitude or worldview or pace of life or rhythm to what it's like in the big city. And it's weird and it's uncomfortable and usually there's some misunderstanding, but as the movie goes on, the, the powerful corporate falls in love with the local and is influenced by the values and the way of life within these small towns till eventually it becomes more attractive than the power and the trappings of the world. And um, I mean, these movies are pretty innocent, but you know, sorry. Um, many of the world standards are a lot more insidious and they've weaved their way into our lives. And we've become desensitized to the way that it's impacting our day-to-day -day lives, even how it's influencing our entertainment, our relationships, and our tolerance for sin. So without understanding God's ethical guidelines, we become like that frog, you know, that's slowly beginning to boil in that pot. We don't even notice that the temperature is going up. The guidelines or way of living that God is calling us to can be found in Philippians 2, 1 to 4. And this really reflects the life of Jesus. And it reads, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, uh, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In the Gospels, we see the general structure of what an ethical life embodies through Jesus' model. 
As he lived and, and, and walked around and engaged with people on earth, he demonstrated a God-centered faith, love, purity of heart, sincerity, humili humility, forgiveness, love towards enemies, mercy, non-judgment, honesty in speech and action, sexual purity, renunciation of the world's standards, and compassion towards those in need. Our highest ethical call is actually found in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 38, when Jesus instructs us to love God with all of our hearts, with all our soul and all our minds. Our second highest call is to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we are walking in the way of Jesus, loving the way Jesus loves, it will have a direct impact on how we think, how we act, how we behave, what we see as being good for us and not good for us. As Christians, these are the standards that we have been called to live, even when it means going against the flow of the world. So the ultimate goal of an ethical life is to glorify God in everything we think, everything we feel, and everything that we do. Given this positive vision, it's quite sad for me that a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, tend to see believers as being legalistic, judgmental, or critical, even condemning. And I listened to a TED talk a little bit a little while ago where the speaker used to be a member of the Westboro Baptist Church. This is a church in the United States that is widely considered to be a hate group. It's known for its public protests against the LGBTQ community, against military, and um, it's known for its use and its picketing and its phrases, and forgive me, uh, where their famous phrase is God hates fags, which happens to be the web address for their church website. Part of the faith practice is to picket outside of abortion clinics, condemning scared women to hell, picketing at military funerals, even before Sunday services, going to churches and protesting because they hold different perspectives. And um, members engage in hate speech against atheists, Jews, Muslims, transgender people, Based on our high call to love, to have the same mind of Christ, it is sad to me that they believe that these attitudes and actions honor God, when in reality they fuel hate, division, and legalism in attempt to try to hold up a Christian ethic. They have, in fact, missed the mark. If an ethical life encompasses the characteristics or moral compass of Christ, I want to take a moment to talk about sin. You know, it's not popular to talk about sin today, um, but it's a huge topic in the Bible. If we look at just the New Testament alone, if we look at the word sin or sins, sinner, anything related to it, it shows that it occurs 440 times just in the New Testament. 
we read in scripture that Jesus understood both the reality of sin, but also the possibilities of what it means to live a redeemed life. He shows us what is wrong with our living and how a good life, how good a life centered in obedience to God can be. Terry Wardle defines sin as the failure to live out of who we really are in Christ. In other words, when our character, when our conduct does not flow out of our identity in Christ, then we just turn away from God and try to have our core needs um, met elsewhere in an attempt to try to kill the pain. Sin hurts us. It hurts others, and it keeps us trapped in our thoughts and in our actions, in our, in our addicted behaviors. So what do we need to do to realign when we discover that we've been living outside of these standards? Maybe you're recognizing that there's some stuff in me that doesn't align with the way that God is calling me to live. Maybe you resonate more with some of the standards of the world. Maybe you're trying to meet your needs apart from him. Jesus' teaching and ministry is clear. God forgives anyone who turns to him. So how do we realign? We realign through repentance. In the New Testament, the English word um, repent is normally found uh, rooted in the Greek word metanoia, which basically means to change one's mind. So repentance in the New Testament is not about feelings. It's about a decision. And many people also associate um, repentance with emotion. So if someone is repentant, they should be demonstrating a lot of emotion. They should be crying. They should look sad. But the thing is, a person can shed a lot of tears. They can demonstrate emotion, but they cannot be repentant in a scriptural sense. Others might associate repentance with the carrying out of special rituals or acts, in many ways like doing penance. And you can go through religious rites, so it looks good on the outside, but not be repentant in your heart. True repentance is a firm inward decision. It's a change of mind. But it, that's only part of the picture. The Old Testament word most commonly used to repent to mean repent, it literally means to turn, or to return, or to turn back. So this harmonizes perfectly with the meaning of repentance in the New Testament. The New Testament describes the change of mind, that inward change, whereas the Old Testament picture looks at the outward expression, the turning. And so, in other words, the New Testament emphasizes the inward nature of true repentance, and the Old Testament emphasizes the outward expression of that inner change. Putting the two together, we form a complete definition of repentance. It's an inner change in mind resulting in an outward turning around. Repentance is an invitation for us to come home. This is beautifully illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son. This is found in Luke 15. The primary focus is actually on the father, um, his act, but the son had a massive role to play, um, and we'll see what that, what that comes to. 
So the father gives his inheritance to his son. The son squanders it, ends up living with pigs, and um, we then look at the heart of the father. It begins with this act of generosity. Despite his son's utter waywardness, the father never disowned him. He was his, son, he was his father's son before he left. He was his father's son while he wandered, and he was his son when he came home. The first thing that the father wanted him to know was that you are my son. You still belong to me. He didn't bring up what he did, force his son to grovel or beg for forgiveness, or even admit his wrongdoing. Instead, the father searched for him. He ran out to meet him, and he brought him home. Kenneth Bailey wrote a book on the prodigal son from a Middle Eastern perspective. And he explains that if a man was wealthy, he wouldn't necessarily have had it in cash in the bank. So in order to give that inheritance, he probably would have had to sell off some herds, some crops, maybe even some land, and possibly even had some of his workers without a job. And when he gave that third away, um, it would have actually brought shame on him. And it took courage for the son to return home because as part of the shame-honor culture in, in the Middle East, um, anyone from a family to, to someone within that close-knit community could reject him and perform a ceremony that would banish him. So any Jew, for example, who lost their money amongst foreigners would face the kazaza, which literally means a cutting off. This was a ceremonial act of breaking a clay pot at the foot, the feet of someone who has brought shame as a visual sign to, to the person as well as to the community that they have been forever rejected. I could imagine that when the son saw the father running towards him, perhaps he was worried that the father would then reject him. But then there was also an interesting thing because in the culture, a man over the age of 40 found running would have been a shameful thing. And in order to run to him, he had to hike up his robes, which was also shameful. So he risked his reputation, humiliation, to go and meet the son, putting himself between the son and anyone in the community that would want to have him banished. He risked his reputation to go and meet his son and bring him home. It was the father who restored the son. He put shoes on the son. He put his best robe on him and put the ring on his finger. It was the father's outpouring of visible love that turned the son's heart towards his father. And the son's work was simply accepting being found. How we personally define repentance has in a large part defines how we interact with God and others. When we feel responsible for our own repentance, kind of like the Pharisees, it puts tremendous pressure on us to have to be good. We have to be good. We have to strive. And the problem is that when we focus on being good, we forget about the relationship with God. And we endlessly swing between self-righteousness and guilt. And then we project this thinking onto other people. But when we realize that God takes the responsibility to find us, to restore us, 
we can release so much of the control that we have in being our own God, in trying to prove our worth, our value, and our goodness. True repentance is best described as coming home, being received, loved, and restored in community. Ian Thomas wrote, true repentance is not being sorry for something that you have done wrong. No, if you do something wrong, you should be sorry, but that is not real repentance. Real repentance is hilariously exciting. It's facing the facts of life, recognizing how God made you, how you were intended to function, and then being restored to that relationship of interavailability that the Lord Jesus enjoyed between himself and the Father. A mutual interavailability in which you are prepared to let him be God. This is true repentance. So when we discover that we are living for ourselves, when we are living outside the ethical guidance, guidelines and goodness of God's order, we have the incredible gift of being able to choose to realign ourselves, to realign our hearts and our minds with God and meet him as he calls us to come home. And then we get to walk out this coming home in community, which leads me to the third point. How does the church respond? How do we welcome a prodigal home? How do we live out the high call to love our neighbor, even if our neighbor is living outside of God's boundaries? Do we respond with resentment like the older brother? Or are we quick to throw clay pots in a kazaza act? In our modern day, that act would be translated to cancel culture. If someone has made a mistake or done or said something that is wrong or inappropriate or unethical, we tend to make really fast judgments and groups of people can simply cancel that person. This is true even if the act occurred decades ago and isn't part of how someone is today. That canceled person is no longer relevant, respected. They're found without a seat at the table, they're silenced and irredeemable. Cancel culture is a community sin. It is in opposition to kingdom ethics and it minimizes the redemptive power of Christ's work on the cross. I'm not for one minute saying that people should not be held accountable for the things that they have done wrong in their actions, in their words, in their attitudes, but nor are, and they're not exempt from the consequences. However, the sin of cancel culture is the attitude that mistakes mean there are no second chances. There's no opportunity for a person to grow. There's no grace or mercy. It endorses rejection. It removes any potential for healing. It may even lead to violence, as we've often seen within the trans community. And it can cultivate a deeper fear of the rejection of people than the drive to the heart of God. And people, as a result, end up saying trapped in sin, because what would happen if I was truly known? I am grateful that we serve an upside-down kingdom. Jesus had his own brand of cancel culture. It was just an upside down one. Because at the cross, what he canceled was our debt. He canceled our sin. He took care of it and then invited us, instead of living in rejection, live in the freedom of mercy 
and kingdom belonging, being adopted in as his child. God does not write me off for my mistakes. He doesn't silence me or push me out. He helps me to grow. He embraces me as his child and through the power of the Holy Spirit helps me to change and to be transformed. If we want to walk the way of Jesus, then we have to be people of love, not people of cancel, uh, cancel culture. Because cancel culture says, you make a mistake, it isn't your mistake we point out and disqualify, it's you. It's you, we cancel you. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is marked by generosity, embrace, care, and mercy. We are called to live these ethical principles in community to create safe and healing spaces where the broken can find restoration, where they can find hope. Mistakes matter. There are consequences. We have to walk out forgiveness and making amends, but it doesn't cancel us. The grace we have received should actually pull us towards mercy. So there are three primary ways in which the church ought to resist cancel culture. One, it's having the humility to be able to accept differences of opinion. Approaching disagreements with reason and caution. And thirdly, allowing for the possibility and the hope of redemption. It's easy to forget that every sinner has a future Many of our heroes in the faith have had notorious pasts. Think of David, think of Moses, think of Peter denying Jesus three times. Every one of us has done something reprehensible. It's precisely in these moments where we are exposed or called out in our sinfulness that we need to be able to experience the real transforming power of change within community. We heal together. A teenager who is being caught vaping, for example, is not canceled by their parents. But actually, this could be a real opportunity for growth, for deepening of relationship, for exploring heart motives and broadening understanding. The same goes for any person who is found out. We don't condone bad behavior, but Christians are called to show mercy. God doesn't cancel, and neither should we. We are called to be a house of love, a house that welcomes the prodigal's home, that nurtures, that feeds, that heals, that forgives, and refrains from judgment. So in these confusing times in this world that we're living in, the role of the church is to give a clear witness and a compelling response. We are not condoning harmful behaviors or beliefs. We are, but we are called to show mercy to those in sin and to give them a pathway towards repentance, to help them hear that call to come home. Understanding that we all have things in our past, we need to promote a culture of grace that recognizes that we are all on a journey and that no one has arrived. So let's stand together as we close in prayer.
Lord, I want to thank you that you have given us such clear guidelines for our life, our heart, our attitude, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our decision-making. May these guide us in how we treat others, in how we measure the standards by which we have chosen to live our lives compared to the standards that you have laid before us. Holy Spirit, I invite you to begin to work in our hearts. Begin to reveal any areas where we may have strayed outside of those boundaries, outside of those guidelines, where the standards of the world have subtly begun to influence our thinking, our actions, where our hearts have maybe grown critical, judgmental. Lord, I pray that you will shine a light. If there are spaces that, and areas that you want to just bring your healing, bring your understanding, bring your grace, so that we can become realigned with you. Help us to hear your call. Help us to hear your call to come home. I want to put a call out for those who maybe have recognized that some of the standards of the world have crept in to your life. That um, maybe you've seen this morning, Lord, I need you. Maybe it has highlighted an area or an attitude that you might have been holding towards others. Maybe there's someone in your life that you have canceled and God is calling you to open your heart up towards forgiveness, towards mercy. Mm. Or maybe you, there's just a sense of the Father running out to meet you, to call you home. I want to create some space this morning to just pray for you. So if you're feeling... No, Celeste, if you could maybe <coughs> just come. Yeah, I want to invite you to come forward and, and receive prayer. We would love to, to pray with you and just create space for, for the Father to meet you. Mm, amen. It's so good. I just feel also just to add to what Karen is saying here, that it would be good if we prayed for people today. <coughs> who have suffered the wounds of judgment. You have been in a judged position. You've been cancelled. Someone's accused you of things. And that can stick, eh? It can stick with you for decades. Something that has set over your life in earlier years can hang over you like a banner that defines you. You want to break it off you today. Or maybe you, on the other side, as Karen has been saying, on the other side, you need to actually repent of being a critical, judgmental person. And you have been saying things that are 
destructive to others and living in a way that is cancelling of others. We, we want to we really fly the flag of grace this morning. Because the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So while Celeste is just playing for us, uh, just so there's no embarrassment while we pray for people, this is a time to pray. And then I also want to just say, if there's someone here who's, and I felt this yesterday morning in my prayer time, that we needed to pray specifically for people who are having a great difficulty in the business place. It's just the gears are not quite clicking in your business. And uh, you want to you ask God to come and seek his kingdom first in your business situation. We want to pray for you as well. So if you like prayer this morning, while we wait on the Lord, just come up front and take some time to stand here and receive prayer. Yeah, you want to say that? Come, yes. Morning, everyone. Um, just, I don't know, just I felt led to add that sometimes we are our own worst critics, whether it's shame or something, and, they, you know, that we might become aware of something in our own lives and we tend to cancel ourselves. Mm. Um, so I think if there's anyone that needs prayer for that, so I'd like to Amen. pray for you then. So if you have been in a place of being judged, maybe it's self-judgment as... as uh, we're hearing now, uh, and you want to be set free from the curse of judgment. This is the time for prayer. Come up front, and we'll take some time to pray. And as people come, would you come and stand with them as well? Let's immediately just come and uh, surround people with with uh, prayer, uh, the presence of God, because He says when we people when we pray, God is close to us. Uh, Deuteronomy four seven speaks of that. So, thank you, Lord. The del- deliverance from judgment. Setting free from critical spirit. <clears throat> Breaking an impasse in the business situation. Also, uh, saying, you want to say some more? Got it? Okay. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> Why don't you come and pray with those that are just coming? Just come, others just come and stand with them. Lay hands on them, pray for them. If you're praying for someone, I do also encourage you <clears throat> to pray in the front of them so they can hear when you, when you pray. Um, and you can, uh, as it were, address together the issues and see what the Spirit of God will do as He transforms things. Eh? Uh, come up and pray. Come in, more people to come and pray here on this side as well. Especially if there's someone coming up that's wanting prayer for the business situation, would you just indicate that as well and stand in agreement that the, the, the handicaps, the blockages would be broken and God would send a release seeking first of his kingdom <coughs> in the business environment. Thank you, Lord. <coughs> Robbie, come and pray. Meredith, come and join him. Thank you, Lord. There's no hurry, guys. We just want to create a kind of a surgery, a place where God can do his work by his spirit. Thank you, Lord. Um, I also just wanted to say this morning um, I thought during the week that sometimes we have these prayer times and we have specific calls for um, very specific words um, but what happens if we have a prayer need and it's not mentioned 
Um, so I just felt this morning to say that if anybody has any other need for prayer other than what has been mentioned this morning, you're more than welcome to come up and receive prayer. anybody with us today that's never met Jesus, we'd love to lead you to, to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So feel free to come for that as well. We'd love to pray with you. Or introduce yourself to us at the coffee shop and just ask for prayer. We'd love you to experience being born again and becoming a child of God. So no hurry. You can sit and relax, stay where you are, pray for those that are up front, or you can go and have some tea and coffee and fellowship. We will meet again at 6.30 this evening for a wonderful time with David Riss uh, being encouraged to come back this evening as well. And for those online, thank you for listening in today as well. God bless you. And we look forward to you joining us for the conference, which will also be live streamed. All the sessions of this conference starting tomorrow evening will be live streamed as well.